Sorry, my cat thinks she sees something. And I don't love it. A bee? I don't know what she thinks she sees. She's been like really obsessed with my closet lately and definitely thinks there's something living in my closet. And I have really gone through it with a fine tooth comb and I don't see anything. Mm, that's alarming. It is. I hate it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, welcome to Fauna Packs. I'm Grace. And I'm Mads. And this is a quasi-educational, fully humorous discussion of animal facts that you hopefully didn't already know. And I'm going to start this off in a different way because I have an exciting update. Oh! Yes. So I know we just talked about muscles. Yeah. But I met the person who is in charge of muscle conservation for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for the state of Texas. What? Yeah. He's the fiancé of somebody in the department. So <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was like, nobody cares about butterflies. They only care about monarchs, which is true. <laughs> um, and he's like, oh, no. <laughs> His fiance is like, yeah, he works with muscles. Nobody cares about them. I was like, yeah, they're amazing. <laughs> uh, so we talked about muscle, freshwater muscles, and how they're all dying. <laughs> well, you know, he works in conservation. so That's on his brain. Yeah, he only told me some more interesting facts. So there's one that lives on, like, you know those little clips? The, the little larva called Glaucidia that I said lived in fish gills most of the time? Yes. Yes. Some of them exclusively live on mud puppies. I don't know what that is. Okay, mud puppies are, um, they're amphibians, so they look like salamanders, except they keep their gills throughout their life. So they have, looks like they have a little fringe around their head. No? No, no, it doesn't ring any bells. Oh, well... I can Google it. So they're also freshwater then, I assume. Yeah, so they're a salamander that keeps its gills throughout its life instead of growing lungs. Oh, I mean, they basically just look like a salamander. Yes, they look like a salamander with, like, uh, external gills. So they look like they have... With a wig. A little... Did you say a wig? I did. Yeah, like a little rough around their, their neck. A Victorian rough, perhaps. <laughs> yes. Oh, we were talking about Victorian fashion before this. <laughs> yeah, so that was my update. Um, just a cool fact. And then learned out how people keep track of really endangered mussels, which is they put little RFID tags on them. And then he's saying that they just swim along the river and or like small creeks and streams where they are and just reach into cracks and pick them up and I was like you must be have done that a long time if you get a muscle every time instead of a rock and he's like uh you get a lot of rocks <laughs> 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 no I was like oh okay 
I'm glad I'm glad I met you. <laughs> Hard work being a muscle muscle biologist. Yeah. So that was my update. Short update on that. I love that. Yeah, this is like helping me network. <laughs> if I hadn't spent a whole afternoon, well, probably more than that, looking at muscles. <laughs> but what I wanted to talk about that's not an update today mm-hmm. is totally unrelated. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about biofluorescence, which is different from bioluminescence. That was going to be my first question. How did you know? So, yeah, bioluminescence is animals or plants, I guess organisms, they manufacture their own light. Mm-hmm. But biofluorescence is when wavelength of light that has a lot of energy, so like UV or blue light hits an organism or anything, I guess. I guess it's biofluorescence, but fluorescence is just a high energy wavelength of light hits something and then what bounces back is a lower energy wavelength so it'll appear like a different color so if you have short wavelengths like uv or blue then it'll be bounced back as green orange or red usually which are longer wavelengths and lower energy huh. I, I can explain it more if you want yes i don't can you i'm i'm struggling to visualize what that means in practice okay the easy one is you have a black light you go to the bowling alley and it's, what is that called? I can't remember. What is when it's like they put the black lights on at the bowling alley? Oh, this is a bad example. <laughs> Does that have a name? Yeah, it's like something bowling. Okay, anyway, you're in a place with a black light for whatever reason and it's called something. And then your shoes glow white or things are like glowing really brightly. Yeah. Or they appear different colors than they usually would, that's fluorescing. So you're saying there's organisms that can... Take the UV, shine UV on them, and then instead of appearing a dull brown or whatever color they are, under the UV, they appear purple or green or orange or red or something. Hmm. So most of the time, light hits something, a lot of the wavelengths are absorbed, and then the one that isn't absorbed bounces back. So right. if everything is absorbed except blue and blue bounces back, we see blue. Right. But in this case, blue is bouncing, hitting it, and then what comes out, what comes back is not blue. It's a different color. Huh. Is that, you sound unsatisfied. No, I'm just... I can, I can explain the chemistry behind it. Mm. Poorly. I understand it. I don't know if I can explain it that well. I don't know about the chemistry, but like, okay, so we're saying in a normal thing, like blue bounces off, other other colors are absorbed, so we see blue. But if we're, so like what's happening to those wavelengths then? Like if the blue is bouncing off, but we're seeing a different color? Okay, maybe I explain, maybe bouncing off is the wrong word. It's actually, okay, it's actually absorbed. And then it excites the electrons in whatever molecule. Oh. So the electron is excited, and then when it settles back down, it releases energy because it relaxes back to its regular state. And when it releases that energy, instead of releasing 
the blue light that originally absorbed, it used up energy to get excited, so it's a lower energy wavelength. Wow. Okay, I did it. I don't know if that made sense. No, it does. It does. It does. I think I get it. Whew. That was the hard part. That's like <laughs> all the background information so you can, we can get to animals. Perfect. So, so yes, this happens in the animal kingdom. And as we get better technology, we're finding it in more and more places. And as we find it in more and more places, people are looking for it in more places. So now there's just like ton of examples. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is from David Gruber's lab. I don't know where he is right now. I've seen Harvard. I've seen places in California. So, But it's from his lab, a lot of it. So an example of fluorescence, they found fluorescence a lot in different fish. And a lot of them, when you look at them with human eyes, they look camouflaged and they're hard to see. So these are fish like eels and bunch of fish, I don't know exactly what they are. Lizard fishes, blennies, scorpion fishes, gobies, and flatfishes. I don't know what all those fish are. <laughs> I'm not really a fish person. But they are all kind of cryptic and hidden and camouflaged. But what's cool about this is, yeah, most of them for us, green or orange and red. When you look at them through what they probably see. So, for example, they found these two sharks, so they're cat sharks and swallow sharks. They found out that these cat sharks, they can only see blue or green, like this hmm. blue-green color. That's the only color they can see. So, we can see red, green, and blue, and depending on the combination that comes in our eyes, we say, oh, it's like orange or that's yellow, uh -huh. depending on the wavelengths that hair eye. So, these guys can only see blue-green. But that means that when they go into deep, when they live in deep water, and so deep water filters out all red and orange and yellows when you get deep enough, and it only has blue light. If you are only looking through a camera that can only see blue light, they just glow. What glows? The shark. <laughs> the shark glows. So to the eyes of the shark, all their other sharks glow. Yes. Got it. But if you're looking with human eyes, the shark is pretty much invisible. Huh. It's so dark down there. So these animals that we thought were pretty mm, hidden, maybe to each other, they're just beacons hmm. swimming around. And so for the males in these cat sharks, there's different patterns between the males and females. Like the females are more spotty, and then the males have glowing um, claspers, which they use to mate. The females. So I think actually a lot of a lot of this fluorescence is for getting mates in a lot of different animals. Mm. So other ones that glow in the sea, at least sea turtles. Because once they found it in these fish, they just started looking everywhere. So there's uh, sea turtles, seahorses. I'm trying to think of some other ones. There's some rays. And apparently like corals... These aren't fish, but they're in the ocean. Corals, jellyfish, all these guys fluoresce. And it's really bright if you look through the right lens because of blue light. Can I ask a question? Yeah. So is the theory that any organism that fluoresces can also see the fluorescence of itself and others? 
Yes, that's the idea. Does that mean like to them the ocean is just like really bright and there's just like a bunch of colorful things everywhere? It depends on what they're sensitive to. Mm. So maybe some fluorescence, if there's different colors of fluorescence, so some fluorescence might not be the ones that fluoresce red might the sharks might not be able to see that they might not be able to see those animals hmm. yeah that's all we talk about that because our the butterflies i study they can see uv i don't know if they fluoresce i guess that's something i could look at <laughs> they see uv so but other things can see uv as well so they're sending messages with uv signals but somebody else might be picking up on those mm-hmm yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting, but it's hard to look at all the eyes of. <laughs> the paper I read was 180 fishes. Oh my goodness! It's a lot of work to look at all those guys. You know what I want? I want them eventually when they have like a huge database of what everything can see. I want there to be like, you know, like an old school projector where they had the plastic sheets that they would put down on the projector to like pop up on the wall Mm -hmm. where you could have a seat an underwater scene and then based on the different sight of different fish or creatures or whatever they would like put different layers on it of different colors do you know what i mean so you could see the different (laughs) things that they can see and can't see yeah i can send you Ooh, does that exist not quite as cool as what you're describing (laughs) what you're describing is very cool i can send you a a diagram that is that (laughs) it's just hand drawing it's like here's a little shark here's the human in the corner this is what they probably see here's a shark in the corner this is probably what they see here's some fish that might be eaten by the shark and this is what they see yeah, I mean, I think the modern version of what I'm talking about, which would be also very cool, is like a VR thing, you know what I mean? Where you- yeah, oh, that'd be awesome. I like that too. Thank you. So that's that's all I had for the marine animals. But there's actually, just so like we, I was talking about shining black lights on things, biologists who study terrestrial animals have also just been shining black lights on a lot of things. <laughs> It's just so funny out of context. It's like all these like biologists are like going to have a rave. <laughs> no, it sounds like when you read all the articles, they're like, yeah, I heard this thing biofluoresce. So I just went to the museum and started shining things. <laughs> like on dead animals. Yeah, so some things we've known have fluoresced for a while, like scorpions. Hmm. They kind of glow this blue-white under UV light. But they're starting to find more and more vertebrates that are doing this, which is really exciting. So in birds, parrots have been known for a while, like the crests that they use to attract mates. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then in owls, there's this weird thing where they show, I saw this picture of this saw wet owl. And so the new feathers that were growing in were this pinkish color, but then the old feathers were blue. I mean, if you just look at the bird, it's just brown and white feathers. 
and you can't tell the difference. But as they age, they fluoresce differently, which is interesting. That is. And then another thing in birds, my cousin sent this to me. They looked at puffin beaks, and they glow really bright. Hmm. Like this blue, and then there's a little bit of orange. It's really weird. And so they looked at dead puffins, and they're like, oh, what about a live puffins? But they're like, oh, you can't just shine live puffins with a bunch of UV because it'll hurt their eyes. Mm. So there's pictures of them with these little puffin sunglasses. Oh, my God. It's really cute. It's so (laughs) funny. It's so funny. They are like little puffin blinders. Oh, my goodness. I can't. You will have to will have to include a photo of that. Yes, I will. I'll send it. I'll have to check the copyrights, so don't get too excited. But I'll send it to you definitely. Everyone <laughs> puff in fluorescent sunglasses. Oh my gosh. Other I I guess I just think all things that fluoresce are kinda cute or beautiful. But the other thing is, uh it's also been seen in reptiles like or wait, how was I gonna say this? Oh no, amphibians, sorry. So they found a frog, the South American polka dot frog, glows green under UV. And then they've seen bone fluorescence what? in the pumpkin toadlet. So these pumpkin toadlets... I'm sorry, first of all, are you saying a toadlet like a, like a piglet? Yes, it is a very tiny frog. It looks like a very tiny frog and it is orange. So it's a pumpkin toadlet. <laughs> they realized these toadlets were chirping, but they were deaf. So the researchers were like, so these guys can't actually hear themselves. So how are they communicating? And so they put them under UV and yeah, they're, they fluoresce. But it's not actually their skin fluorescing, it's their bones fluorescing. What? Yeah, so they have this really thin patch of skin over their bones. And so it's the light of their bone, like the fluorescence of their bone coming through the skin that you see under UV. That is insane. It's really cool. And then I guess apparently chameleons have this as well. So they were excited to see in this toadlet. But I don't know. I think the toadlet example is cooler. And the chameleons look cool, but... (laughs) They're already cool, you know, they don't need this whole other level. Oh, the pumpkin toadlets are cool, too. Okay, sorry, I've never seen them. <laughs> they are really cute. Other things that fluoresce... Oh, flying squirrels. Mmm. They glow hot pink. Yes! My father sent me an article about this. Yeah, and that guy, that guy literally was just walking around the woods looking for things that biofluoresce. And then apparently there was a flying squirrel at his bird feeder. He was like, what's that? And shined (laughs) his UV light on it and it glowed. So yeah, they're just flying around the forest. Bright pink. (laughs) Or whatever. I don't know if they see it as pink, but they're glowing. Probably. They can probably see each other glow. That is so wild. Yeah. I just, I mean, I'm really interested in how animals see things differently than we do. Because butterflies can see a wide, a much wider range of color than we can. Mm. But it's really hard to figure out what they can see. And things that we think are unimportant are important to them. Mm-hmm. So it just means that when somebody figures something out, then we all start looking for it. Sometimes it's worth it. 
So that's what I had on biofluorescence. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> what do you have? I have something that I hope you don't know about. It's a it's a tradition, it's a custom that isn't really practiced so much anymore, but it's the telling of the bees. No. Okay, excellent. Sounds like my kind of fortune telling or whatever this is. Yeah, it's not quite like that. But yes, I thought you would very much like this if you didn't already know it. So, the telling of the bees is this traditional European custom where bees are told of important events in their keepers' lives. So, mostly it seems to be about like when their like keeper dies, but also happy things like births, marriages, people coming and going in the household. If the custom was omitted or forgotten and the bees were not put into mourning, then it was believed that there would be some sort of penalty, which was generally the bees leaving the hive or stopping the production of honey or just dying. And this was widely done in England, but has also been recorded in Ireland, Wales, Germany, the Netherlands, France, Switzerland, and the U.S. Oh, the U.S.? Really? That's what it says. There's a couple ideas about where this came from, but they're not, they really don't know. One theory is that it's loosely derived or like inspired by ancient Aegean notions about bees' ability to bridge the natural world with the afterlife. Another idea is that it might be from Celtic mythology, where the presence of a bee after a death signified the soul leaving the body. But neither of those are, like, super – they're both very tenuous theories. Uh, The tradition seems to have been most popular in the 18th and 19th centuries in Western Europe and in the U.S. Basically, the whole point was that the bees were supposed to share in the morning of a death in the family. So there's a lot of different ways that, you know, varied by area of how they would do it. Uh, Generally involved – kind of draping each hive with some black cloth. It was required that the news would be delivered to each hive individually by, like, knocking on the hive and telling them. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) There's a book from the Victorian era called A Book About Bees, written in 1886 by Charles Fitzgerald Gambier Jarens. I don't no. Oh, I'm sorry. Jennings. So in his book, he says that the message to the bee should be delivered at midnight. There's some other regions where they just hang the cloth on the hive and then sing to the bees. This just doesn't sound like the bees would be happy. Not like sad bees, but just angry bees. Like being disturbed? Well, knocking on the beehive does not sound... Like, it would make bees happy. I presume it's a very gent. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> okay, yeah, I didn't think they were, like, shaking the beehive. Bees! Did you hear bees? Wake up! He's dead! <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry, keep going. No, no, you're fine. There's another variation from New Hampshire that the news of a death must not only be sung, but the verses must also rhyme. And there's an example from another book called Bees in America, How the Honeybee Shaped a Nation by Tammy Horn. 
that goes, bees, bees, awake, your master is dead, and another you must take. If the bees begin to buzz after this information is delivered, it's a good sign. Oh. There's another custom associated with bees, which is called ricking, like rick the name of a person and ing. Okay. A ritual that required the eldest son in the family that had just had somebody die to shift all of the hives to the right in order to signify that a change had occurred. Another take on this was to shift the hives so that their entrances faced the family home. But that was only if the deceased was being waked in the house. Oh. I feel like that would not make the bees happy. (laughs) No, they have good memories. So they're like, oh, where's the new entrance? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. The, The idea behind it is that not telling the bees would have really bad consequences. Yeah, well, I can see, like, you know, anything to make your bees not... Depressed? A swarm. Probably, I don't know, this is... it. Like, if you have this tradition, it forces you to take care of the bees you have to pay attention to the bees if you you're telling them this stuff that's true if you're taking care of them they're probably not gonna fly away yeah that's that's my take on it (laughs) i think it sounds like it's it is interesting well i have some i have specific anecdotes that have been recorded if you would like yes i would there is a case in norfolk where a man, I'm assuming, I don't know where Norfolk, it doesn't say, I think England, but I'm not sure, where a man purchased a hive of bees at an auction. When he returned home with them, they appeared very ill, and it occurred to him that they hadn't been properly put into mourning after the death of their previous owner, and so he then draped the hive with black cloth, and soon after, the bees regained their health. Oh. There's another one. In 1956, the Associated Press reported a strange occurrence at the funeral of John Zepka, a beekeeper from the Berkshire Hills. So his funeral procession reached the grave, and the mourners encountered this swarm of bees hanging, just relaxed from the ceiling of the tent and clinging to the flowers, and they didn't bother anybody. And this was in 1956 in Massachusetts. They were like, nothing like it had ever been seen before and really seemed to confirm the idea that they needed to tell the bees. Hmm. Interesting. Again, like I said, it wasn't just unhappy things that the bees were invited to participate in. So if there was a wedding, the bees were supposed to be informed and sometimes they would receive some of the wedding cake. (laughs) like sweetened maybe the the hives were sometimes like covered in flowers to celebrate in britain sometimes they put on a scarlet cloth for a wedding on the hives in germany there's a tradition where newlyweds must introduce themselves to the bees or they will have an unlucky marriage oh a theory for that might be that might be a way of compensating the bees for the vast amounts of honey consumed during wedding celebrations. Oh. Oh. And then there's just like there's a lot of there's a lot of poetry surrounding it. So it was pretty much like I think it was pretty much already out of fashion by like the 1850s, but 
it definitely got the attention of poets for obvious reasons, you know, death, nature, poeticness. So there's a very famous poem by John Greenleaf Whittier, Whittier that actually gave rise to the phrase telling the bees, but it hasn't been in vogue for a long time, which is why we probably had never heard of it before. Yeah, no, I think it's a good, it sounds like a nice tradition. Right? What strikes me is maybe now we aren't as connected to where we get honey. So I doubt that people are keeping honey in industrial hives or doing this. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's trucks just full of hives. Why you gotta be like that? <laughs> no, I just think it's interesting, like, our relationship with these animals has changed. Yeah, for sure. So if that's how you got your sugar, like if you're using honey more often than sugar for baking mm -hmm. and flavoring things, yeah, you're going to be darn nice to those bees. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. There's something I really love about how intimate it seems. Yeah. I also, I think this is totally a stereotype and not really based on anything real, but... In my mind, I think of beekeepers as being, like, more, like, zen, like, gentle people, often. Hmm. I I don't know that many beekeepers. I guess my mom kept bees. Oh, really? I guess I'm thinking of, like, in, like, movies and pop culture and stuff. Oh. There's always, like, that wise old person who keeps bees who's just, like, giving you wisdom, you know? And honey. I mean, most of the people that I know that kept bees like honey and bees. That was the connecting thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Grace, whatever. I won't read into I mean, it. I don't know. There's probably something else about it. No, but... you're probably right. Well, I think you also have to, like, be kind of brave, right? Because I think some people think beekeeping is scary and they don't even investigate it. Yeah, that's true. I think it's a lot of work, too. Yeah, I think so. I uh, I don't. I'm, I should stop talking about it because I don't know very much about it. I know. Oh, gosh. Well, it's taking care of an animal. It's just like, I mean, there's a, a lot of animals. Yeah. A lot. Of, but they have a personality. and. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Yeah. I, just, I like that. Me, too. I just thought it was nice. Yeah. Maybe not that funny, but. I mean, kind of morbid. <laughs> No, <laughs> not like, I guess not morbid, but you know. Well, you know, another year of school is over, you start to think, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what am I doing this for? Yeah, who's going to tell the bees? <laughs> Will the bees mourn for me? <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah, I like that. I did not think there would be that much information on morning bees, but you proved me wrong again. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so proud to have you. It was meant to be a compliment. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I felt like it was. <laughs> okay. I'm, I realized after I said it, I was like, oh, gosh, it's supposed to be a compliment. <laughs> no, no, no. I like being proven wrong uh, when it comes to animal facts. More is better. <laughs> 
All right, all right. Should I close this out? Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Fauna Facts. You can find visuals on our Instagram page at Fauna Facts Podcast. Similarly, if you don't use Instagram, you can find those visuals at faunafactspodcast.blogspot.com. And hopefully you're listening to us on some form of podcast application. And if you are, feel free to just hit that subscribe button and give us a review. Give us five stars, you know. Hit us up with some animal facts. You can do that at our email, which is faunafactspodcast at gmail.com, or just tell us, because pretty sure only people we actually know listen to this. But thank you. Yeah, thank you. Till next time. Bye. Bye.